Welcome to the CQ on Congress Coronavirus Special Report. I'm Jason Dick, Deputy Editor for News at CQ Roll Call, and we're here to provide the policy news you need to know about the coronavirus pandemic. Today is Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. Just as several cities and states were beginning to gingerly reopen for the first time since the pandemic struck, the wave of racial justice protests over the deaths of George Floyd in Minneapolis on Memorial Day struck. Protests are among the places people are least likely to safely distance from one another, and the more than week of mass gatherings in the Twin Cities, Chicago, New York, Detroit, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and more has led to concerns we could see a spike in coronavirus infections. Sandia Raman and Emily Kopp at CQ Roll Call's health team have a story about that. Sandia, Emily, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Jason. Uh, first question uh, for you, Emily. Where where were we, you know, in a general sense, uh, in infection or mortality rates uh, when these protests started uh, uh, shortly after George Floyd's death, uh, Memorial Day? Sure. So we were quickly approaching and then surpassed the 100,000 marker of fatalities. And it really depended on what state or locality you were talking about. Um, In some places, we saw a flattening off of cases and even a decline in some places. But in other states that reopened ahead of the recommended two-week decline in cases, even saw upticks in cases. So it really depended on the locality and the approach that public officials had taken to reopening in those places. And and general, like you know, with Memorial Day, you know, we did see, you know, beaches reopen in places like Ocean City, Maryland. And, you know, they had they had been open for a little while in Georgia and Florida and places like that. Um, but even with people gathering in so, those kind of ways, that was not, uh, it, it wasn't the case that thousands and thousands of people were in close quarters marching down the street. So, Sandia, you know, when you have these mass gatherings like this, these protests, what are some of the unique conditions that the protests provide that make them such ideal places to spread a respiratory virus? Well, A lot of experts have said that, you know, anytime you have any kind of mass gathering with that many people, you're already at heightened risk. And then the nature of a protest when you're, you know, chanting and yelling and, you know, you're more likely to increase the number of droplets that could be contagious if you have the virus. And then there's also the added factor of, you know, if there's tear gas um, in the air that, that's being sprayed, if you're going to cough, then maybe take off your mask and not everyone is even wearing masks. So it's just kind of like a, a whole different number of factors to kind of play in together. Yeah. I mean, you know, some, some of the images that you see are, you know, I mean, not just people, um, you know, kind of choking and, and I don't, I don't know if uh, any of our listeners out there have been pepper sprayed or tear gas, but it is, it's a, an involuntary reaction. You're it's not just crying. You're also almost like kind of gagging and throwing up and coughing. Uh, and people are helping people that are happening like that too. I mean, you see people pouring water and milk in, in people's eyes. Um, and these are all about, these are not hospital like conditions, you know, like it, it just seems like a, a, a really, um, like a just a, a terrible disease vector kind of situation. I think that's really accurate. I talked to some experts in respiratory health who raise concerns that not only do the effects of tear gas increase the chance of transmission, but could also, if you happen to be asymptomatic, um, make 
the disease much worse and progress more quickly and perhaps be more deadly. So the experts I talked to said using tear gas during a pandemic doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think one one of the folks that you, you all talked to uh, said, um, yeah, the, the coronavirus really likes to hang out in the lungs, in the spongy <laughs> tissue in the lungs. And that's exactly where tear gas goes and exactly where the, the lungs try to expel it. And so if you could, it could be dislodged, you know, in, in a way that you wouldn't even normal in our normal breathing circumstances. The coronavirus that causes COVID-19 likes to hang out in your eyes, nose and mouth, and also the lungs. So that's exactly where you experience, um, as you described, severe pain from tear gas. So, you know, there's no research on this yet, but it's safe to say that this could be a really unsafe combination. And Cindy, the I mean, the, the protests are about police brutality uh, against primarily African-Americans. Um, and those are exactly the, the same people who have already suffered disproportionately from the coronavirus the, that causes COVID. Isn't that right? There's a lot of evidence to date that, you know, communities of color have been disproportionately hit by the pandemic. They're getting the virus at higher rates and they are dying at higher rates. And especially, you know, in the African-American community, they're like three times more likely to die of the virus. Um, and a lot of that kind of comes down to a lot of different factors, you know, if you are more likely to live with a lot of people in a small space, or if you are working in a job where it's much more difficult for you to work from home and you're at a heightened risk from getting the infection there. So there are a lot of different things that are at play. And uh, Emily, some of the public health officials uh, who are concerned about this have, have been trying to figure out like, okay, what do we do next? What do we advise people to do? Um, what, what, are, what are some of the things that public health officials and political officials like mayors are saying to the protesters? What's their message to them? Their message is to stay home. But I think they also have the added motive of quelling these protests in general. But some public health measures there recommending are also to self-isolate if you think you are exposed. But one of the public health experts we spoke to mentioned that this isn't always possible, especially for people who might be really motivated to go to these protests. They might work an essential job or or may have lost their job through the course of this pandemic. So that's not always possible for people. Another thing that a source mentioned is the importance of contact tracing and how protests could make that understandably much more difficult if you're not aware of who you might have come in contact with in a large protest. But you know, the fact is that these contact tracing regimes are not up and running in many places. So that's not a concern as yet. And, you know, to be fair, this is not the only thing that could cause a spike. I mean, like, what are some of the other factors in addition to, I mean, a mass gathering is certainly going to be a factor, you know, if somebody has coronavirus in it. But there are other things that people are worried about with a, with this, with a second spike, right? Right. And some of the experts we talked to pointed out that we were already anticipating a second wave before the Black Lives Matter protest started driven by an economic reopening and warmer weather, discouraging people from social distancing. You might remember from a few weeks ago, um, former BARDA director Rick Bright said that we were in for um, 
potentially the coldest winter in modern history. So this, this is the former uh, head. I mean, it was basically the agency that helps develop vaccines, right? Right. And he raised some concerns about how the Trump administration was handling the pandemic. So, you know, we already had plenty of indications that um, a spike was in the works. So, well, have we left anything out uh, um, on on the story? I mean, it's it's a um, kind of chilling. <laughs> I, I didn't. I wanted to make sure we covered as much ground. Did we? Did we get everything? Yeah, I think I would just add, um, in addition to raising some concerns about the spread of COVID nineteen, these protests have really forced a conversation about how police brutality and racism show up in people's health and have really increased the conversation about how to address those concerns. And as Cynthia mentioned, you know, the, um, the social determinants of health are showing up in how COVID-19 spreads. So that's important to keep in mind. And I would just add that, you know, one of the things that the experts had told us was that, you know, if we don't address some of these like structural changes that are necessary to kind of prevent we might see, you know, something happening similar in, if we see another pandemic in the future. Well, Sandia, Emily, thanks very much for talking about the story. Thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, back on Capitol Hill today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the chamber would be considering a change to the Paycheck Protection Program that the House passed last week, 417 to 1. But there's a bit of a hang-up. Jim Saxa has more. A fight about expiration dates threatens to spoil efforts to get the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act through the Senate this week. The bill makes a few tweaks to the program. The biggest one would lengthen how long companies have to spend the loans and still have all the debt forgiven. Right now, that time period is just eight weeks, which made sense back when we thought the stay-at-home orders would only last about a month. But it took way longer than that to flatten the curve so the bill would triple the eight-week deadline to 24. It also extends the program's application deadline from the end of June to the end of the year. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he wanted to move fast on passing the bill, but he's hitting resistance from two of his own. Republican Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin are blocking a quick vote. The reason? They say the program's supposed to be short-term. So they're sour on the new December expiration date. Lee and Johnson want an August deadline instead. That's a small change, not exactly a deal breaker, but making it would mean sending the bill back to the House, which isn't in session right now. That will mean more waiting. And time is running out. According to a recent NFIB survey, nearly a quarter of the businesses that borrow money will hit their forgivable use deadlines next week. The Senate did vote on nominations today, and among them was Brian Miller to be Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery at the Treasury Department. He was narrowly confirmed. Finally, as people who cover policy and politics for a living, we've been wondering what's going to happen with this summer's political conventions. The prospect of tens of thousands of people gathering, not just in arenas, but other mass gathering places, seemed far-fetched amid the coronavirus. After some initial discussions between the Republican National Committee and North Carolina officials about a scaled-back convention in Charlotte, the GOP now says it wants the convention to proceed with no social distancing precautions. The governor of the Tar Heel State, Democrat Roy Cooper, today put his foot down and told Ronna McDaniel, chairwoman of the RNC, and Marsha Lee Kelly, president of the convention, 
that that wasn't going to happen, and that in order to safely host the convention, the GOP would need to adhere to the appropriate health guidelines. We'll see what happens next. That's going to do it for today's podcast. For everyone at the CQ Roll Call Newsroom, I'm Jason Dick. Thanks for listening.